always say that if a woman will tell you her age, she will tell you anything. Paulette Godard Chapter 29 Life is a series of metamorphoses. Some of them get more airtime than others. I remember once waiting in a gynecologist's office to see the doctor. There was his desk, on the walls family pictures, on the shelves some weighty texts. I was curious about hot flashes, so I pulled one of the volumes and flipped to the index. There was a single page referenced, and on the page one paragraph. It said, to paraphrase, that your internal thermostat might go haywire. The medical establishment wasn't sure why. They hadn't really studied it much. And the publication's advice was to dress in layers or take supplements and not to worry about it. Oh, and it, it meaning menopause, can go on for 10 years. That's a long time. Jane, Polly, and I all had our own take, which we discussed frequently. My favorite meeting place was the fastidiously refurbished Sunset Tower, a last bastion of grace and vertical art deco on the billboard-pocked Sunset Strip. When I first arrived in Los Angeles, the building was a ramshackle remnant of a bygone era. Once it had hosted elegant apartments, but that was so long ago. At first, notable stars and notorious mobsters made it their home, but in the decades that followed, it fell into disrepair, prompting one of its last tenants to greet his guests. Welcome to Beirut West. When I was in my 20s, it was largely uninhabited. Up top in the penthouse, though, driving by around Christmas, when the rest of the building was dark, lights would glow in the windows, and I could make out a tinselly tree touching the scaffold where once there was a ceiling. I fell in love with it then, majestic, forlorn, and romantic. At the tower bar, Jane would enter into a lengthy discourse about menopause between sipping on a Moscow mule and biting on a pig in a blanket. Menopause, she said, was a return to our quintessence, once the hormonal tides that ruled creation had subsided. I broke out into a grin that was going to grow into a giggle. Instead, I lifted my chin and waved at an imaginary friend across the room. Billy, she said, former nanny on display, eyes front. I redirected my gaze. Do you know what a quintessence is in the study of physics? It's a field of dark energy everywhere and in everything. It's the stuff that makes the universe expand. Polly raised her glass and clinked it against mine. She was relieved and relaxed once her period stopped, forever shed of any thoughts of expansion. Natalie was an anomaly, but she did have a very interesting viewpoint. I'll tell you, let your hair go gray. Seriously, look around. Nobody, but nobody here does it. It's an instant signal of wisdom and maturity, and if you're tired of the once-over, that momentary summation of your entire being by every man you meet, based on your ability to carry his seed, well, that suddenly stops, and I wouldn't know about menopause. Polly said, What are you talking about? I'm still having my period every month. Jane was astonished. I thought you were 60. I am, Natalie replied. Damn, no wonder your skin looks so good, I said. 
Do you know you're born with every egg you'll ever have? That means mine are 61. Natalie shook her head like a disapproving aunt. So the guys don't give you the once-over, but you can still, theoretically, have a baby, Polly stated. I'm not about to test that theory out, but yes, my child would be wise beyond their years. So you'd give birth to Yoda, I said. Nap time not to be. Tantrum I will. Jane chimed in, and we, the former nannies, all lost it. As for me, I drew my life lessons from Hollywood, and menopause in the movies doesn't exist. Unless you consider any movie Joan Crawford starred in post-World War II. And do you want to know the reason why? I think it scares men. I don't think ghosts or gore or ten-foot-tall limpid blue aliens can hold a candle to a 48-year-old woman for sheer awe-inspiring fear. Think Ms. Crawford in, say, 1950. The harsh makeup, the lacquered hair, all so yesterday. But the spirit lives on. The steely, humorless demeanor. The superficial sweetness masking a cobra strike. Oh yeah, you only have to ask those who inhabited the same space with me while my cycles became irregular and my thermostat broke. I was going to include a formal portrait of Joan from that period, but then I saw a picture of Miss Crawford barefoot, mopping the floor in her kitchen with a scowl on her face, and forgive me for saying so, but I identified, deeply, deeply identified. You see, there were days I would rip your heart out over a splash of coffee on the counter or a drop of jam on the floor. Let's talk dust. Better yet, let's talk baseboards. Why is it nobody else but me saw them flocked and teeming with dirt? Are male eyes structurally different than female eyes? That just can't be. And if you retort with some particle versus wave theoretical hooey, I will smack you. Brace yourself. A change in tone. Some might call it a mood swing. And oh, my darlings, they came quickly then. I had been working in the movies for nearly 22 years. There were days, most days to be perfectly honest, when I reflected on life and thought, I am the luckiest person in the world. Sometimes I would look at Jake and think, he was the most adorable thing on the face of the earth. And let's face it, he is. And yet, did that afford him any protection? Not really. I think the male lack of dirt detection is made up for by a, a hormonal danger zone sensor. I could see it in the set of Jake's shoulders, his primal alacrity, alert, poised to flee. Suddenly he would declare a need to visit the Apple store for a useless cable or electric doohickey. Do you need to go right this second? Looking to protect his flank, he'd invoke the name of Booker. I'm setting up Mr. B's iPad. We would exchange a look and then he would take off, leaving dust trails behind. Thank God for the Swiffer. There were, of course, messages from friends who made it safe to the other side of the estrogen progesterone falls, fiercely happy in their own skin, as evidenced by this letter from my old friend Patsy. Dearest Billy, I know how you are about things that beep, buzz, or glow. 
So, eschewing the screen, I send you the following missive on lovely stationery, in apology for missing your calls. I have been so very busy. I sold the big house in Malibu we inherited from Roland's grandparents, and to the annoyance of my daughter, I have taken the money and endowed St. Joseph's Hospital, and not because of the holy-sounding name, far from it. I like religious people, conditionally. I like them if they live according to their creed and keep quiet about it. Nothing is more tedious than someone spouting off about doing unto others, while their voice escalates and their eyes glaze. Some weeks ago, I had the occasion to interview a real estate broker in connection with the sale. She appeared sober and contained when she arrived at the door, refreshingly plump if a little dowdy in her attire. When she opened her mouth, I realized she was unhinged, having the unfortunate belief that sharing with a prospective client created an instant bond. I wanted to hear about character homes, comparable sales, and square footage, when suddenly I was listening to a torrent of information. She'd had a hysterectomy, didn't have a husband, couldn't have children, and was devoted to her pug. Quote, I mean, he's like my child, unquote. Wait, there's more. She sang in the choir, had contrived a church-based rental service to shelter her real estate commissions, didn't believe in income tax, and wanted to know if I cared to attend one of her prayer meetings. Did I care to? Heavens, no. The only thing that concerned me at that moment was how to get her out of my house. Suddenly, she didn't look dowdy, she looked sinister and bloated, her face too round and shiny, her hair lacquered flat to her head. She didn't believe in paying income tax. Did she believe in education, infrastructure, justice, and the CDC? I had the most uncharitable thought. What if I stuffed her mouth with an apple and tossed her into the compost bin to be recycled into the earth, where she most certainly would never be bothered by civic duties ever again? Now, now, we all have our thoughts. The trick is not to act on them. You will be relieved to know that instead I offered her a cocktail. She declined, noting the hour of day and quoted Corinthians on the drunkards never entering the kingdom of God. That settled it. I suggested a tour of the house. It's so rare and so old, Hollywood. Passed from my in-laws down to my dearly departed Roland and myself. Now that the child has grown into camp to Manhattan with my grandchildren, it seems vast and unsuitable. The room's quiet, the sight of the ocean from high on our verdant bluff, something too glorious for a sole pair of eyes especially at the beginning of summer, when the afternoon should have been filled with slamming doors, sand stamped from damp feet, messy handfuls of shells and stones, sunburned noses, wetsuits, surfboards, demands for something, anything, to eat. You can most likely calculate my age now, but I'll save you the trouble. I'm seventy. High time I unloaded this joint. We started in the living room, I kicked off my shoes while pointing out the fine lathe and plaster walls, the original light fixtures, the Portuguese mahogany windows framing some of the most beautiful scenes on earth, and the barrel vaulted ceiling. Entering the formal dining room, I shrugged out of my sweater, noting the picture rail from which hung painted portraits of our family done by well-meaning but not terribly talented friends. 
I made some horrid crack about it, meaning I never had to dine alone, and proceeded to the library, where I removed my jewellery and placed it on a tray before moving into the breakfast room, pantry, and kitchen. I can't abide people fussing with the original footprint of a house. Really, can't abide it. If the architect had intended for this to be a great room, he would have designed a great room. The only great thing in the year this was built was the depression. I love it here in the movie colony. It defies belief, but that's what Hollywood is all about. Funny though, I spend most of my time right here at the kitchen table. I sat on one of my chairs and removed my pantyhose from under my skirt. Sometimes one feels like so much stuffed sausage in all these layers. I smiled. The realtor had a peculiar, shriveled expression around her mouth. We progressed through Roland's study, a playroom. His grandparents had six children and a conservatory. I had removed my skirt, blouse, and slip. I was just mentioning something about living the way God intended, one with old nature and the Lord's gracious bounty, meaning, of course, I was on the verge of recommending a bracing swim in the ocean just about one hundred steps down from our house. A selling point, surely. When I heard the realtor waddling away as fast as her little swollen feet would carry her, fleeing for dear life through the house and out the front door, I stepped out of my panties, unhooked my bra, wrapped myself in a towel, and headed for the beach. Another hour of sunlight and the first swim of the season. Isn't life beautiful? Ever yours, Patsy. Now it's time to draw our attention back to Isabel and another metamorphosis. You remember Isabel. At seven, she was a solemn and inquisitive child. As a teenager, she was fond of horses and dropped ketamine in my champagne one Christmas. After boarding school, brooding Isabel, to her mother's great surprise, was admitted to Stanford. There, she studied computer science and worked on some kind of project during her doctorate, which taught computers how to differentiate between a happy face and a sad face. Not that the ex-Mrs. Taylor, better known as Mrs. Klein, was sure her daughter could really tell one from the other. Motherly love is a hard thing to unravel, and perhaps Gabrielle Klein's skeptical view of her daughter had something to do with the fact that she hit menopause at about the same time Isabel, always introverted, turned into a tech prodigy. Mrs. Klein weathered her hormonal teeter-totter through sheer obstinate grit. No one had told her that at times her heart would ricochet and rattle and palpitate. No one had told her she would wake drenched with sweat and have to rise in the dark, towel off, and change her sheets before returning to a fretful sleep. She professed to herself, and strangely enough as a kindness to me at one of Jake's graduations, while I was fanning my face and hoping a silk blouse wouldn't stain, that her early fifties had produced a tendency in her temperament to burn, which swelled and radiated as the hot flashes subsided. She never quite shook it, even when her periods completely stopped. She hadn't mellowed as she got older, she got more sarcastic. Or, as Jane would say, she revealed her quintessence. The morning Gabrielle turned 65, her son Andrew asked how Isabel was doing with her startup, and she replied, Isabel, 
Well, she didn't make it for either my birthday or Sunday breakfast. She indicated the dining room table set for three, an antique blue and white bowl piled high with fragrant ruby red strawberries and freshly poured cups of coffee wafting up tendrils of steam. So I suspect she's still hanging upside down in her office like a bat. Her daughter was industrious, at times nocturnal, and she didn't always respond to social cues the way one would expect. That was true. She was known to fall asleep at her computer, her arm, where her head had rested on the desk, cramped and tingling. Like a bat, she had good sonar. Waking in her office, there was no disorientation. She would merely walk down the hall to the ladies' room, splash cold water on her face, swish her mouth out, do whatever else was necessary, and then return to her coding. In a way, the structure of a computer network is like that of a building. There's a foundation, framework, hardware, then the walls, ways in and out and around, and on top of all that, boundaries and locks. Yet, the easiest way into a network, like that of a highly protected studio, say my studio, is if somebody opens a door or an email. At the studio, there were all sorts of strictures about mail servers, copying data from the internet, or browsing of the same while at work. People were immediately fired for the infractions mentioned previously, or sharing on social networks. And yet, I, who should have known better, handed over the keys to my kingdom when glancing at a private email while on the company server. There was a note from my usually silent stepdaughter that the email address was spelled incorrectly completely passed me by, with a link to click for a photo of the family. I was touched that Isabel would be so thoughtful, so I clicked mindlessly on the link, got nowhere, and receiving a call was immediately distracted, the email forgotten, the malware it installed undetected. In a montage from the era of black and white movies, pages would have flown off a calendar in a whirl to indicate the passing of a year. While that imagery might strike you as trite, menopause does make time fly. Jake was in his last year of his medical fellowship. Andrew was working for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and Isabel's company had been bought by one of the tech giants, setting her out to pasture, so to speak, at 34, on a small ranch where she bred, this one's almost too easy, horses. What about the most fundamental of changes? Let's turn to that pillar of strength, my surrogate father. Mr. Booker had left my employ the year Jake went to college. He had fallen in love in an exceedingly gentlemanly and quiet manner with one of the poker players at Bob Brown's regular game when his charge was a senior in high school. Mr. Booker, as we all know, was very particular about appropriate timing and proper conduct. He and his spouse, Tyrone, split their time between Palm Springs and my guest house in Los Angeles, close to their dear ones, as they called them. The two of them traveled back and forth with the seasons, each savoring Southern California's perfect light. It illuminated the work of an old animator turned portrait painter and warmed the old Englishman as he read and tended his desert garden in the morning sun. They were married in their 70s, the very first time for both of them, 
in the summer of 2008. They were married in the summer, and by November, licenses were no longer being issued for same-sex couples due to a constitutional amendment that four years later was declared unconstitutional. Mr. Booker and Tyrone knew there was only one way to march through time, and that was forward. While others revisited the dreams of their past, glorious or inglorious, they kept their eyes on the future. Though they didn't see me on a daily basis, they did check in frequently. Over dinner or on speakerphone poolside by their mid-century home in the desert, the one thing they always tried to impress on me was that people did best when they were anchored in loving relationships, come menopause or high water. I would laugh, tell them that I loved them, and affirm I was better off on my own. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.